The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went to the, towards the east hills of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward Negev. I'm also going to read Genesis 15, verses 1 to 21, and that's on page 11. So Genesis 15, starting at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure." When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, 
To your descendants I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was about 16, I decided to write a book. It was a fantasy book. And I thought, I'm going to give, you know, being an author a go. So I wrote chapter one. And then I gave it to my mum see what you think, and, uh, you know, just sort of a bit of approval, a bit of encouragement. But Mum's a bit of an editor, and she brought out the red pen. And she began to systematically work out what was wrong with it, what didn't make sense, all the grammar, all the errors, all the spelling mistakes, one by one by one by one. And lo and behold, the second chapter was never written after that. Too demoralising. But as I was writing, my little experience in writing a book, I realised one very important thing. You've got to work out who is going to be the main character. When you open up the Bible, it becomes apparent very quickly that God always chooses the most unusual people to be the main character in his story, in his plan. Never is that more true than the book of Genesis. God, in chapter 12, chooses Abram, and Sarah. We don't know much about them, but we know the things we do know about them are less than ideal. Three things. Firstly, they're old. I mean, chapter 12, Abram is 75 years old. And that's the beginning, right? He gets older and older and older with each chapter. And it really goes into great detail about how old he is. But what's unusual is this is the beginnings of the adventure. This is about new change, new beginnings, and they choose, God chooses Abram. 
a 75-year-old retiree. It's interesting. You look at the most of the superhero movies that are coming out now, right? Who do they pick to play Thor or Captain America or Scar uh, Black Widow? They choose Chris Hemsworth. They choose Scarlett Johansson. They don't choose Maggie Smith or Michael Caine, do they? No, no, no. And yet God chooses a 75-year-old. Another thing that's unusual is Sarah is childless. It says in chapter 11 she was childless because she was not able to conceive. And that is a profound grief that she carried for all those years of her life. But it is an unusual choice for God to choose her, given the promises that they're going to be parents of many children, as we'll see. Because not only is she postmenopausal, but she never was able to give birth to children. But the most weirdest thing about them is where they're from. You know where they're from? Uh, which sounds like a hesitation, I know. But it's a real place. Uh, they are Ur of the Chaldeans, which is about modern-day Iraq. In other words, a pagan nation. Abram and Sarah would have grown up in a practice of worshipping idols all day long. God doesn't choose the youngest, the fittest, the fertile, the faithful. He starts with an Iraqi pagan pensioner. And he's about to do something truly remarkable. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Page 9, if you've closed your Bible, it's easy to find. Page 9. Because I need your help, right? God says to Abram in verse 2, every time, I say, every time we see a B word, you've got to say it together, right? So we're going to do this together. Every time there's a B word, we're going to say it together, right? So verse 2, God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a? I will those who you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be through you. Do you get the point? There is a lot of blessing in those verses. Blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing is coming towards Abram. Now, the first blessing, a nation. Don't think political structures of borders. Think land, great land, and people that will come from to live on that land. Their name will be known. Abram's name will be known. I mean, it's interesting. In the chapter before this, the people create a tower so that their name will be known. And yet here God is saying, no, 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 I want to make a name for you. Little did Abraham know that thousands of years later, all across kids' churches, songs will be sung like Father Abraham had many sons. His name will truly be known, right? Probably not in the way that he thought, but it would be known. We're speaking about him. Verse 3, favour. God bless them with favour. They're under protection of his care and guidance. In a day when there was no police, no UN, everyone did what they wanted, the idea that whoever curses you will be cursed is an immense comfort. This is like having the Secret Service, the CIA, the rock on your side 24-7. It is immense protection. But it is abundant blessing that will spill over into all God's people and indeed spill into the whole earth. Friends, make no mistake, what God is saying here is nothing short of remarkable. For Abraham and Sarah, they're thinking, this seems too good to be true. I mean, they would have probably been happy with just one child, 
40 acres and a couple of cows, right? But you've got to say, no, no, no. A nation, a protection, a blessing to fill the earth. And it's not a suggestion. It's not a wish list of God. No, no, no. It is said as a promise, a covenant. Now, why? Why, why would God say this to them? Why would he make this promise to them? You know what B word is not found in those verses? The word because. There's no, I will bless you because, Abraham said, you are morally outstanding people. I mean, you've got a great personality. No, 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 there's none of that. We're going to see in the coming chapters that that proves the case, right? They can do some things with, uh, why do they do that, right? It is definitely not because of them. It is only because of God. He is under no compulsion. There is no personal need that he's feeling that they're completing. No, 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 no. He's doing it because it's who he is. He's a God who makes promises, promises of radical generosity and abundant blessing. Friends, this is the beginnings of the story of God's people, but it is the pattern for all of God's people. That God chooses people who are not deserving, who are unlikely, overlooked, and blesses them in remarkable ways. People like you and I. You know, it's so easy to read the biblical character, right? Particularly, I mean, in your devotions, right? Read Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15. And as you do that, guaranteed one thing, you're going to be shocked. Because they're going to do some things here. You think, what the heck? Right? Why did they do that? And you will think, why did God pick them? But here's, truth be told, you know, if a story was written about your life for all to re- read that revealed your flaws and shortcomings, you know what people say about you? Why you? Why are you part of God's people? Because, friends, when you look at us all, when all is revealed of what we do when it comes to God, the correct response to why God has blessed us is, why us? God is faithful and generous. And graciously so, we get caught up in his promises. So that's the first thing. Who the master storyteller chooses. But what does he require? Second point. You know, these are big promises, right? And big promises require big action. They make big demands of your faith, don't they? I mean, God says to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Right? It's a big promise, but you've got to go. You've got to leave. Now, this is not easy for them, right? It's not like, well, we've got nothing to use. We live in a slum and get upgraded to a mansion. No, 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 no. Things were very comfortable for them, right? I mean, Ur was one of the great centers of trade in Mesopotamia, right? It was like New York or London, right? Everyone to be in Ur. They had to go. They to leave what is familiar, what is family. This is a big cost, a big step of faith. But notice God doesn't give them the address. He says, to the land, I'll show you. Trust me. Go. I'll take care of you. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe I just, I'm the only control freak in the room, but I get a bit worried about that, right? I think, 
I kind of need an address, right, to type into Google Maps to see where I'm going, to know what it's like, to see what the cafe's are like, to see where my kids will go to school, what are the people like, what are the reviews or Google reviews, who gets five-star ratings. You know, this is what I'm thinking, right? But the confidence in Abraham is not all the details. What gave him confidence is knowing who God is. And as he just ran out of the blue, it seemed, was gracious to him. Perhaps you can trust him. And verse 4, Abram went, as the Lord told him. Now that's faith. Now I know as soon as I say faith, some of you in the room are thinking, well, but that's my problem with Christianity. Uh, it takes faith, right? And I'm not a faith kind of person. I'm a more rational kind of scientific kind of person. I'm not kind of a faith person. That's why Christianity wouldn't work for me. But can I suggest... Even if you consider yourself a secular person, you also practice faith on a daily basis. I mean, if, if you hold to that this is a material world and this is all there is, and we're just sort of ticking along. If you believe, though, that all people have dignity, an inherent dignity, and there's an equality, and there's such a thing as justice and a right and wrong, those convictions that you believe are good but they cannot be proven in a lab. They cannot be seen. Truth be told, you hold them by faith. My point is, it is not just the religious person that lives by faith. Every secular person holds a whole bunch of views by faith. Faith is trusting in something that you cannot see. It bridges that reality gap. The question is, what is your faith based on? Is it trustworthy? For Abram, it's, it's not just a vague gut hunch. It's a conviction trust in God. But you know what the hardest thing about faith is? Time. As the years go on, things get harder to believe. And enter Genesis 15. It may be a couple of, couple of chapters later, but in fact, it's about 10 years after God made those promises in chapter 12. And after 10 years, there's still not a single child. Abram doesn't have even a square meter of the promised land that God talked about. And he's thinking, has, has God moved on? Has he forgotten? Is he, is he like one of those politicians that sat on the campaign trail who do it and now no longer? Doubts begin to grow. Faith may be slipping. But God, have a look what he does next. Chapter 15, verse 5, says this. He took Abram outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, and indeed you can count them. Right? What he's getting to do is come outside, Abram. Come outside, look, look, look. And look up and see the stars. Now, lucky he wasn't Monday Sydney, right? Because if you looked up the stars, you'd be like, there's one... That's a plane, and there's the second one, right? There's not many stars when you look up. But he's out in the countryside, but there's no light pollution or anything like that, right? And he's looking up, and he begins to count the thousands of stars. One, two, three, four, 551, 552, 552. He loses count. He can't do it. And what does God say? Well, so shall your offspring be. What I find interesting is, why did God choose that analogy for because he could have said, well, Abram, come, look. Look at the sand in the desert. 
count all the grains of sand. Like I said, look, look at all the mozzies or the, or the flies over there, right? Begin to count them, right? You could have done either of those analogies. But what does he get him to do? Look up. Don't look down. Look up. Look to God. Because your vision of life, right, when you're looking down, will always seem small. When you're looking down, you always say, what is possible, what I can control, what I can do. Your faith will be little. But God is saying to Abram, look up. Look up. Have a big vision. See what I can do. That I'm in control. That I and I alone can do the impossible. Last year we went for a bushwalk and came to a place where, uh, I was up in Queensland, where there's this overlooking this massive cliff. And they'd created this sort of bridge kind of thing out where you could walk out on the cliff, right? And it was a big drop down. But the, the bridge out was made of thick glass, see-through glass, right? So you're sort of stepping out onto this glass and you're looking down and it is freaky, right? It's a vertigo's nightmare, right? You're just sort of walking out. And it's amazing as you're doing it, but as I'm looking at my feet, you know, I, I just, you just got to quake. You get nervous, right? But then you think, hang on, it's not my feet holding me up. And then you look at the thickness of the glass, the pylons, the cables. Oh, and then you relax. And this is the problem with faith. If you just look at your legs, you look at your faith, right? You will always quake. You will always get anxious. You will always worry. But rather, you look at your faith is in. That is the thing we're doing. Faith does not look at itself. It looks entirely at God. And that is what Abram did. Verse 6 says, Abram believed the Lord. And he credited him as righteousness. Abram believed. But Abram wasn't righteous. He didn't do any mighty deed that wowed God and said, hey, you're righteous. No, no, no. What Abram did was he simply walked out on the bridge, so to speak. He trusted. He believed. And for God, that was enough. He gave him a righteousness that he didn't deserve. An A plus in God's eyes for taking God as his word. And friends, in Romans 4, which Emma read to us before, it says this, the word it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Friends, what Abram is doing is what you and I do. Trust in God. Not believing things about God, but believing God that Jesus rose from the dead. And when you do that, you are given not just a blessing, but a righteousness. Christ shares who he is with you. The blessings come again and again. But they come by faith and faith alone. Third and final point, how the master storyteller reassures you know, truth be told, friends, most of our personal experiences when it comes to promises are not all that great. There are people in this room who dad said, yep, I'll be there, I promise, and he never showed. Some of us had a spouse that says, yes, I'll be with you to death to us part, and they walked out. Some of us had a business partner that said, yeah, yeah, I'm good for the money, and they weren't. And we wonder, when it comes to God making promises to us, is he going to be like that? 
This is what Abraham's thinking. Verse 8, he asks a very human and normal question. He says, Sovereign Lord, how, how can I know? I'm going to gain possession of it, of the land. How, how can I know? Do you ask that question, God? How, how can I know? Abraham's struggling. And so what God does, he helps him in the most unusual ways to know. He says, Abraham, go get a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and some young pigeon, right? And what he gets him to do is he gets him to cut the cow in half, one on this side, one on that side. Cut the goat in half, one on this side, one on that side. Cut the ram in half, one on this side, one on that side. And if you're thinking this is unusual, it is, right? And then just place the pigeon and the dove at the end, right? They don't get cut in half because I guess they get a bit too messy, right? This is an unusual thing for us. But Abraham knows what God was getting him to do. It's called a cutting covenant. Have you ever bought a place or um, taken out a loan with the bank, right? Money, and you read the contract, the terms and conditions, for what happens if you do not give the money back, right? You read those words, and it's not cosy, friendly, fuzzy words, right? It is very blunt, right? If you do not this, this will be taken from you on this date, and boom, 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 right? They are very blunt. There's no pleas or thank yous. And what is happening here in this covenant, right, is they're making a promise. What they're doing is, what well, would be the common practice of this day, was they would cut the animals, they would make the promise, and then both parties would walk through the animals that were cut. They would walk through together because what they're saying is, if I don't keep my promise, then I will become like this. If I don't come good on my end, then I will become like one of these animals, right? These are the terms and conditions. Like This is the promise, and these are the consequences, right? This is the contract, this cutting covenant, which was done in those days. So Abraham knows what was happening. But you know what's unusual? After he cut these animals, Abraham falls into a sleep. So how's he going to walk through? He doesn't. Only one walks through. Verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. What scholars call a theophany, right? A visible manifestation of God, a visible appearance of God. Like when Moses was at Mount Sinai, right? The darkness and the smoke and the fire, because God was with them. Here, God appears. And he... And he alone walks through the cut animals. And Abraham knew what God was saying. God was saying, if I don't keep a promise, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. But notice, Abraham's not walking through. Because God is also saying, if you and your people do not keep this promise, and may this happen to me. God is guaranteeing his very own life to keep his promise. And there, the covenant was sealed. Abraham was asking, how can I know? And God was making it very clear. I want you to know I would rather be torn apart than see my relationship with you and your people broken. And friends, these aren't just words of God. These aren't just nice gestures of God. 
Because the reality is the story goes on. Abraham and his people would fail. They would be unfaithful to God. They would not keep their end of the promise. They would not be the blessing to the nations. But God kept his promise and Abraham's people did not. And so what happened? God appeared again. This time not as a theophany, but as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who experienced 2,000 years another cutting covenant, who was flogged, who was whipped, who was broken, who hung on that cross and there cried out, my God, my God, why have I been torn apart? Why have I been forsaken? We were the ones who failed, and yet God was torn asunder so that we would be united to him. And there on that cross, a new covenant was sealed. At his expense, at his blood, so that you would know once and for all that you are God's people. We ask, how can I know? How can I know God is trustworthy? And the answer is, look at that cross. Because God is saying, I kept my end of the bargain. I kept my promise. I make promises. And I'm deadly serious about keeping them. So your faith is founding that is something that is not based on you, but on ways that God has done. Friends, this is why the Old Testament is so important to know. Because Jesus didn't rock up 2,000 years out of the blue. No, no, no. The Old Testament is story after story, promise after promise that has been said and kept that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus so that you would know and trust God. You would say the resume, the track record of all the things that he has said he would do and did so that you would know that God is not like your dad or your ex-spouse or your business partner. No, no, no. He's a God who makes promises and keeps them. And this is where, friends, the Genesis story, Abram's story, meets Jesus' story and indeed meets yours. Because by faith, through the Lord Jesus, these promises to Abram indeed become your promises. Abraham's descendants were promised protection. You know, whoever curse you will curse. And that happened. But as spiritual children of Abraham, we get an even greater protection from the most scariest of enemies, death and Satan and hell. Abraham's people did experience that new land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And his spiritual children, by faith, we will experience the land of promise, the eternal land of rest, heaven itself. You know, friends, when it comes to the story of your life, we're all asking, how can I know? How can I know God is going to be with me? How can I know what's going to happen? I mean, we'd love to know the story of the rest of your life, right? If there was a book about what's going to happen the rest of your life, you would read it, right? You want to know what's the next chapter, and what's the next chapter, what's the next chapter, what's the next chapter? We all want to know, but you know what? This God doesn't spell it out. He doesn't tell you what's going to come in great detail. Just like he didn't give Abram all that great detail, but he gave him what he needed to know. You know, my dad, when he's a big dragon supporter, NRL, and he has a habit of knowing the score and then watching the game. Makes him less anxious. He doesn't know the play-by-play, but he knows the end result. And friends, God is the storyteller who spoils the ending for you. 
the ending of your own life. He wants you to know that the promise he's made that true justice will be experienced is coming. That the hope that is found in Jesus will be realized. That he is coming back. And we don't know all the details of your, the story of your life, but we know the most important ones when we, our story by faith is connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way in which we'll be able to take the steps of going through life is not look at your story, but look at Jesus' story. And there there's a confidence that a happy ending is coming. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we know that you've made many promises in your word. And we thank you that all those promises are yes in Jesus Christ. But there are a few promises yet to be completed, like the promise that you will return, the promise of us experiencing life with you forevermore. We know it will come, but there are a whole bunch of ways in which how can we know? How can I know? How can we know? And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you point to that cross, that we know that you, Lord Jesus, are willing to give your life so that we would know that we are your people. There's a promise that we are part of a covenant that cannot be unbroken because it is sealed by your blood. We thank you for the yeses that are in Christ, which means when we look at our life, there is a big yes upon it. Thanks be to you. Amen.